I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Philanthropy expert Shadek Ahmed Siddiqui joins me to explain that the ethics of giving is a lot more complicated than we think. The way philanthropy is structured, especially in the United States, favors philanthropy by the wealthy. It's centered at the top, and as a result, over the years, it's crowded out those people that are not wealthy. Some of the major foundations and major philanthropists of the modern era can dictate public policy for many countries. Stay tuned for our discussion on today's episode of Examining Ethics. My guest today studies and works with philanthropists from all over the world. Sharikh Ahmed Siddiqui is Professor of Philanthropic Studies and the Director of the Muslim Philanthropy Initiative at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. As we enter into what is traditionally a season of giving in the Western world, Professor Siddiqui is here to help us understand the fascinating and complicated world of philanthropy. What are some of the biggest questions with ethics and philanthropy in the 21st century? Philanthropy has always been seen as this beautiful, warm, fuzzy, positive kinds of activity, right? But the reality is that philanthropy has a dark side to it. If you think about people that give time, treasure, and talent, they don't just give it for stuff that is great. They give it to stuff that isn't so great. For example, the KKK or ISIS, these are also forms of philanthropy, right? And they get less of our attention. So I think the first piece of it is that there are some ethical dimensions of pure right and wrong in what our money is used for. I think the second piece of it is that the way philanthropy is structured, especially in the United States, it favors philanthropy by the wealthy. It's centered at the top. And as a result, over the years, it's crowded out those people that are not wealthy. And so I think that's a second ethical dilemma, right? The third big issue is the power that philanthropy provides. Some of the major foundations and major philanthropists of the modern era can dictate public policy for many countries, in this country and overseas. And the question is, should any one or two or small group of people have that extraordinary level of power over broader civil society? The final piece, I think, is... Philanthropy, as we study it today, and especially the way we study it in the United States and the West, has Greco-Roman origins and is very Western-centric. And so the result is that it doesn't allow space for indigenous forms or non-Western forms of philanthropy to be really understood and be inclusive of those ideas. And so these are some of the big ethical dilemmas that we face both in the practice and the policy and the research realm of philanthropy. When we're talking about issues of power with regard to philanthropy, who gets to be in charge of that? You know, how is that regulated? Or, you know, when these questions are being asked, is anyone being taken to account for maybe abuses of power or maybe just having so much power over public policy? Different systems do it differently. In the United States, the reality is that we allow self-regulation. So there is very little regulation of philanthropists today in the United States, which allows them the extraordinary power to do great things, 
but it also has no oversight. And sometimes we think, you know, why should governments or any or society regulate how someone gives away their money? And the reason is in the United States, it's not their money. It's the people's money, because if they weren't giving that money away, they would be paying more in taxation. So they're getting a subsidy from me and you and every other taxpayer in order for them to give away money so that they can realize their philanthropic vision. So from that perspective, in the United States, it's totally unregulated. But if you go to countries like, for example, in China or in Saudi Arabia, they have stronger regulations of those sectors. And we can always argue what is the right balance, but there are these different approaches to philanthropy and regulation. What's sad about all of these systems of regulation is that the beneficiary is never one of those stakeholders that are designing systems of evaluation. So if you're interested in supporting refugee causes, nobody on the regulatory side or on the philanthropic side has thought, you know what, we should center our conversations and our evaluations based upon what those people think. What is their perspective to this problem, right? And it's this top-down approach. And so all the regulatory mechanisms are also top-down. Most of our listeners are in the United States, and we want the distribution of money or the distribution of help or aid to be more democratic. What are some steps that we could take to make it so, right? Most of us aren't those billionaires who are doing the top-down approach. There are things that we can do both in the policy and practice realm to do this better, right? On the policy side, right now, you get tax deduction to give away money, right? Now, the most recent COVID relief act that just happened earlier in 2021, for the first time said, even poor people that don't do standardized deductions, the way you get tax credit, uh, you you reduce your tax bill in the United States is that you either take a standard deduction, which is set, or you itemize. Well, if you're not wealthy and you don't have a mortgage and you don't have student loans, you're more likely to just take standard deduction, which means that if you give away money, it's more expensive for you to give money than someone who is itemizing because you don't get benefits from a tax point of view. So I think the first piece of it is that you should be able to get that tax deduction regardless of whether you take the standard or the itemized deduction. So there should be, that should be brought out just like they did in the most recent COVID relief bill in early 2021. So I think that's one piece. I think the second piece of it is to really cap out how much you can claim for your tax deduction. So there should be a top cap. So that it's not like you're giving away $50 million and all of those reduce uh, reduce your tax burden, right? So I think people should give as much as they'd like but I think that there should be a cap. So from a regulatory point of view, I think those are some important features. On the practice side, and also third piece is that the way we have payouts right now, which is that if you have a foundation, you're only required to give out 5% of your foundation assets. But those could include staff for your own foundation salaries. It could be your accountants and all that. So you don't really give out 5%. You spend 5%, some of which goes out. And the vision is that if you only spend out 5% of your assets, this foundation will stay there for perpetuity. I don't think that the idea of having a perpetual foundation is a great one. I think that we should have rather more aggressive spend down requirements 
because the world has more problems today and governments are spending less. And fortunately, we need to solve these problems through innovative activities, and philanthropy does that. Philanthropy is innovative in so, uh, creating social good. And so if you think about Atlantic philanthropies or if you think about the Gates Foundations, they're not perpetual, but they, they will be able to last a long time and do good but I think there should be more aggressive forms of payouts so that 5% uh, should, it should be a higher number. So those are some ways in which we can not, we, we won't see this accumulation of wealth that'll keep on growing and it won't cycle into the economy as a whole. On the practice side, I think philanthropists need to include stakeholders in the decision-making and envisioning of the solutions that they're hoping to solve. You can't go into an inner city and just think that you can impose some great social good idea. You have to go into those communities that have their own culture and traditions, and you have to engage with those cultures and traditions. And the only way you do that is by including them in your decision-making. What percentage of philanthropists actually do that, actually include the stakeholders in their decision-making? Honestly, I don't have those numbers. I can just tell you from just working in the sector for 20 years that it's not a common experience. There are good foundation officers and good foundations which engage with their stakeholders in interesting ways. For example, the Ford Foundation has offices all over the world and predominantly the people that make decisions in those offices are from those local areas. So the Ford Foundation has an office in Nigeria, which oversees West Africa. All their staff are from West Africa, including the director of that office. And I think that's important, right? Because this way you're creating a mechanism through which you're going to engage with those communities with the lens of people in decision-making places so that that can inform strategy. And that's an exciting way to sort of build out institutions. And so Ford is an organization I've worked with. I've worked with their offices in Africa. And you can tell that those African colleagues bring their local communities' perspectives to the conversations at the global level. I, I had a question about your what you said was the fourth big issue around indigeneity. Could you, could you kind of repeat that issue for me? In terms of the definition of Western philanthropy and indigeneity? Yes. In a post-colonial mindset, and in fact, much of the colonial period of time, indigenous traditions were seen as unscientific, uncouth, and backward. And the ideas that were coming from the colonial powers were about science and it was, you know, it was about knowledge and so on, without understanding that all of those indigenous traditions have their deep centers of knowledge and deep levels of training through which they, get, they transmit knowledge. If you think about Native Americans in the United States, they may not have had formal universities, right? But they had institutions through which they were able to convey knowledge convey governance ideas, convey laws, and convey ways in which they could live their lives in the way that society or community or the, the land that they occupied could sustain, right? But we don't honor that. We feel that the, the scientific philanthropy movement has come in with the idea that all these indigenous ideas, all these ideas that don't come from scientific West, don't bring anything of value. 
And the result is, and we know this from education reform, for example, where we bring in first space reform, which is need to teach a person so that they can get a job, or second person frame, which is we need to teach a person so that they become a good citizen. And those don't work because local communities that get these uh, beneficiaries of these reform efforts don't see them as their own. And that's why there's this idea called third space reform, where you educate a child because you just want to educate this human being to be a good person. And when third space reforms go into the community, there is an alignment around those ideas because most traditions educate their children not necessarily for a job or for citizenship, but because they think that that, that it furthers values and their perception of what a human being should be like. And the reality is there's enough people out there now, great scholars like Rob Ray, you know, many others that have kind of pushed back and said, hey, wait a second, philanthropy is a good thing, but it can also be bad. But regardless of whether it's good or bad, we can all be better, right? And being better includes having people's perspectives that are not naturally the sort of these dominant versions that we always get to hear about. And so that's what I mean about this idea of lack of engagement of indigenous cultural traditions. With the rise of COVID-19 and the pandemic over the course of 2020 and 2021, the idea of mutual aid, which as most of the listeners probably know, mutual aid is, a, is an old idea. It's been around for a long time, but it sort of recently came into the mainstream consciousness as a, as a different and new way to approach giving. Um, so I was wondering, you know, as, as someone who studies philanthropy, and I'm assuming studies that, you know, like you said, you worked with bigger organizations like the Ford Foundation, what are your thoughts about this sort of rise um, in interest in mutual aid in the last year or so? COVID has brought about some really challenging times and difficult times, but the rise of this or re-engagement with this idea of mutual aid is one of the positives that has come out of this. And this is an example of one of the damages, the damage that scientific philanthropy had done, right? You know, these are indigenous forms of philanthropy. If you think about mutual aid, if you think about going back to, you know, hundreds of years ago, regardless whether you're in Africa or Asia or North America, anywhere, the way in which people, most people helped each other was by just creating some sort of a collaborative within their community where if someone needed help, whether it was childcare, whether it was food, whether it was just, you know, someone to talk to, this is what had become, this is how we used to do this stuff. And then this idea came about that, no, the only way that we're going to make, solve the world's problems is by a scientific driven kinds of top-down approach, because only people that have specific knowledge and education can really come up with the solutions for the world today. But I think during the COVID-19 pandemic, what we discovered is that, in fact, much of the meaningful change that really kept us going as people and as communities was largely through this mutual aid. If you go across the world, much of philanthropy is done informally. It's not through these overt public kind of, you know, you're giving away tons of money. It's largely about saying, 
what are the problems around me and how can I solve them? And in some ways, you have grandmothers taking in all the children from the community so that the mothers can go out and work. That in itself, that person's time and that person's attention to those children is a, is, is a form of philanthropy. But these are things that we don't think about. I mean, I, just to go back to when you think about this mutual aid, it goes deeper than that, right? So if you think about the definition of philanthropy in Islam, it's not about just money and giving. It's someone once asked the prophet, how can we give charity? And he said, give away money. They said, well, what if we don't have money? He said, well, go help someone so they can make money and then they will give away money. What if we can't do that? Well, just then do something with your hands to do good, so volunteer. Well, what if we can't do that? It said, well, smile, because a smile is charity, right? Well, what if we can't smile? Well, then if you're about to say and do something that's gonna cause harm, don't. So philanthropy Islam is not doing harm and trying to think and find ways to do good. When you incorporate that element of definition of philanthropy, it includes these ideas of mutual aid. And that's why it's not surprising that much of the Muslim world, if you go to outside of the United States, much of philanthropy is informal. Much of philanthropy is in the form of people to people, people helping people. And you know, people always joke with me and say, well, how are you gonna measure a smile? Or how can you measure intentionality? But can you imagine what the world would be like is if six billion people spent a significant amount of time every day smiling at each other and spending six billion people spent the day thinking, what are ways in which I am causing harm and what are ways in which I can do good? If people think it, then that's going to cause them to react and do something about it one of your areas of expertise within philanthropy is Muslim philanthropy, correct? That's correct. You know, you said that you've been thinking about and writing about these issues for the last 20 years. You know, what are, maybe what are some of the changes that you've seen or some of the shifts that you've seen with regard to Muslim philanthropy within this time period, basically since, since 9-11? I think post 9-11, Muslims have sought and Muslim nonprofits and Muslim foundations and Muslim philanthropists have sought legitimacy uh, because what they have been hearing from everybody is that Muslims are not, are foreign, even though one of the largest blocks of Muslim Americans happen to be African-Americans who they have, have lived here for generations since, uh, in fact, we know that nearly 20% of slaves brought to the United States were Muslim. So they see themselves as being perceived as being foreign. And so they've created legitimacy. And the tragedy that we have as a result, there's some good things that have come up as a result of this, uh, this search for legitimacy, and they're bad things. The bad thing about the search for legitimacy is that we have had to fit within a box that's been created by mainstream philanthropy. We have had to live within the idea of what is considered to be a good, acceptable, legitimate Muslim, and that's one box, and then what is not. And so we have had to contort ourselves to fit within that box. It's a tragedy that in order to seem legitimate, Muslim philanthropists have had to disconnect their spiritual values from their giving. We've done research that shows that most people give to faith-based or secular causes in the Muslim community and the general population because of their faith. 
But somehow, to seem legitimate, Muslim philanthropists can't use spiritual norms or terms when they're engaging in their philanthropy because they want to seem legitimate in terms of the money that they give away. So I think that's one tragic piece is this disconnect. I think the second piece of it is that Muslim Americans are a very young community and resulting in it being a poorer community than the national average. So there's less money. But Muslim Americans are tasked with not only solving some of the problems that they face by themselves because mainstream foundations and philanthropists aren't willing to support Muslim causes, but then they have to do the extra job that you may be an organization that uh, you may be a food kitchen where you're feeding the hungry, but then you also have a responsibility to fight back against Islamophobia. Every Muslim in this country is now called upon to defend Islam and Muslims, which is this whole new charge, right? So they're doing a lot with very little. And I think that is a second tragedy because there is very little help from foundations. The powerful piece of all of this, the great things that has happened over the, as a result of this spiritual legitimacy. One is, I think, despite their great diversity, they are for greater cohesion. You know, it's a very diverse community with all the same challenges of managing diversity that our country does. But there's a realization and an attempt to sort of navigate that diversity. And I think that's, that's something that is forced upon them in a post 9-11. When you're under attack, you have to find ways to work together. And so I think that's one piece. I think the other piece of it is that Muslims traditionally try to give in a way that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So it's very private. But what we're seeing, because in this search for legitimacy, that they're still giving like they were before, but now they're giving publicly. And that allows us to have these really beautiful narratives and diverse forms of social good that are an important part of our national fabric. And these were very hidden before, but now they're part of our communities and so on. So, and then the third piece of the seeking legitimacy is that Muslims are finding more time to finding interfaith allies or allies of people with other faiths or no faiths to come together and do social good. And I think that's something that's creating opportunities both ways. They're learning a lot from other cultures and other traditions and other religions, but they're also bringing the Islamic values and so on to those conversations. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing out of that. The last piece I will say, and I'll end with one last challenge, uh, which is that because Muslims, philanthropists and nonprofits are seeking legitimacy, they're very good at working with people of other faiths, because ultimately, if you think about if you're, you know, there's this concept of white adjacency. If I have a friend who's white, then maybe I'll be seen as being white too, right? And that makes me better. But similarly, if you're a nonprofit or Muslim nonprofit or Muslim philanthropist working with a philanthropist or nonprofit of another faith, if nothing else, I, it helps my legitimacy, right? You know, this, this, this group must be good. This Muslim organization, these must be the good Muslims because they have some non-Muslim friends that they work with. The challenge of all of that is that because they're so resource uh, limited, they're not working together. So you have Muslim organizations that are duplicating their work. They aren't coming together and collaborating together. And that's one of the reasons why we've actually at the Lilly School have established something called the Community Collaboration Initiative. 
So those are some of the advantages and challenges in this, you know, this post 9-11 world that Muslim American nonprofits sort of uh, have to uh, live in. Why do you care about this? What, what brought you to this work? Sure. So, you know, uh, my father's a doctor, my grandfather's a doctor, my great-grandfather helped found the Pakistan College of Surgeons and Physicians. And then my, on my mother's side, I have people, uh, I have relatives that have been socialists. They believed in the idea of elevating workers and elevating uh, people that worked in farms. And to me, one of the ways in which I saw philanthropy and social good occur within the traditions that I learned about my parents and my grandparents is that you spent your life doing something worthwhile you're a doctor you're a lawyer you're an engineer and at some point when you are wealthy enough then you give away and you spend time to volunteer and do all those things and to me that felt like such a waste of time like i'm gonna have to wait like 20 30 years before i can really devote my time to doing good stuff and it was just impatience uh, that said, you know, okay, if I go into this field uh, and if I just do this work, then um, I can start from now. There are going to be sacrifices. I won't make as much money. I may have to live, uh, work longer hours. But I want to do with my life something that transforms uh, and makes the world better than the way, than when I left it. And so in this journey that I have, I started out as a volunteer. I then became a practitioner. And then I became a lawyer so that I could have the legal side, so I could help in governance. And eventually I became a scholar because each, every time I did something, and it's this impatience, right? I became a volunteer and I said, well, what if I worked full time? Then I became a full time employee. And then I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not getting the impact that I'd like. And so finally, I said, well, what if I did research and taught people? You know, I as one person can only do so much, but my research and people I teach can reach many more. And so it's that transformation of being wanting to do more and more and more. And so I fell into philanthropy. The only difference between my story and many people like me is that in my case, because my family has this rule that you have to be a professional. That was the one thing my parents said, you have to be a professional. I just did all the education that allowed me to say to them that, look, I'm a professional do-gooder and I've taken, I have a master's in philanthropy and I have a PhD in philanthropy because those are the degrees that you do in order to become a professional at that. So I just felt called to do this and I didn't want to waste life, which is so short, doing different things when I could just spend the entire life doing something like this. If you want to know more about our guest's other work or some of the things we mentioned in today's episode, check out our show notes page at examiningethics.org. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Production assistance from Brian Price. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. 